Thank the Lord for air conditioning. Can you believe there actually was a time when Christians got together in this kind of heat? And here was the air conditioning. That's it. So we have different form. We're grateful for it. Well, we, uh, we walk through the waters of the first 17 verses of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. We made it through the begat section. And now we are uh, taking a step into more familiar territory. And this is a story about what I'll call the royal birth. And it's basically Christmas in July. So the next, the next two sermons will be about the birth of Christ. And, uh, and I've heard of some pretty unusual stories of marriage and some unusual stories of births. But I think this one tops them all when we think about the royal birth. We're in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 this morning. So I'll just dive right in and read that text. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. If you've read the Gospels, uh, you will know that throughout Jesus's ministry, there were certain groups of people that liked to challenge him. And it was the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they didn't think much. There came a point in time when they didn't think much about Jesus. And so they were studied in the law and they would always try to trick him and trap him up. And they would formulate these really difficult questions and ask them in such a way so that if Jesus was kind of forced to condemn himself one way or another. If he answered the question the way that they had hoped that he would. And so they were played the role of his enemies a lot of time and uh, they never really succeeded at catching or trapping Jesus, eventually they had to just hire false witnesses to testify against him. When we get to Matthew 22, we're going to kind of take a sneak peek this morning. But when we get there, we're going to read about certain situation when Jesus was once again confronted by Sadducees and the Pharisees. And what happens in this situation, however, is that Jesus is the one that asks a question. And when he poses this question, this question is asked in such a way that from this point on, the Sadducees and Pharisees don't ask him any more questions. So what kind of question would Jesus ask 
that would shut these traps, these mouths of the Pharisees and the Sadducees once and for all. Let's find out. Matthew 22, I'm going to read verses 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So what caused them to surrender their worded weapons? It's this topic of the deity of Christ. Whose son is he? Well, they said the son of David. They could relate to to the human genealogy, the human side of Christ. They're familiar with those kinds of documents and records and thinking of being and existence. But they don't have much of a perception of the idea of the Christ and the Messiah actually being deity, actually being the son of God. They weren't prepared to think about that or to even wrestle with that. And it tripped them up and they didn't know what to do with it. Just like today, there are people that will readily acknowledge, sure, Jesus existed. Yeah, he was a man. He was a good man. Matter of fact, he was a good teacher and some will say, yes, he was a prophet. But when it comes to saying he is God, Then the waters begin to split. Many of today's Christian cults get hung up with this very subject right here. The deity of Christ. They'll say a lot of things that are right. But you're not going to get them to land on the truth that Jesus is God. This is what hung the Pharisees up as well. He is God in the flesh. You would be surprised, in fact, today, how many Christians do not believe in the deity of Christ through the virgin birth, which is how we get the deity of Christ. It's how we get fully man and yet fully God. It's through the virgin birth. That was the method of the means that God in his economy and plan and his great wisdom chose to bring it forth. You'd be surprised at how many Christians do not believe in the virgin birth. And you would be surprised that the majority of them are clergy. In an article, it's a little bit old, but it's the newest one uh, that I could find. It's not like there are polls every year asking people about the virgin birth. But this one's in 1999, an article in the magazine, Current Thoughts and Trends. Um, Out of just under 7,500 Protestant clergy in the United States were asked if they believed in the virgin birth. And 
it's a little awkward the way they stated that it says the following ministers did not believe in the virgin birth. So uh, American Lutherans, 19 percent of their clergy don't believe in the virgin birth. American Baptists, 34 percent. Episcopalians, 44 percent. Presbyterians, 49 percent. So about half of the clergy. Episcopalians, uh, I'm sorry, Methodists, 60 percent. Don't believe in the uh, virgin birth. And then they had to do a separate poll with the Catholics and they fell at about 25% of their clergy. Do not believe in the virgin birth. Then Barna, more recently in 2007, did a poll of his own and he just sampled a a little over a thousand adults. And he found that 75% of them believe that Jesus was born to a virgin. 53% of unchurched people in America believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Pretty good. And then even 15% of agnostics and atheists believe uh, in the virgin birth. 15%. So uh, even among those who describe themselves as mostly liberal on political and social issues, 60% believe in the virgin birth, according to the answer they gave in this poll. And then you have to decide for yourself what this means to you or in the world or to life. But among the clergy, um, those with the higher degrees of education were more likely to not believe in the virgin birth. And um, do with that what you may. But please don't fall into the temptation of, well, we need to put uneducated clergy in the pulpits. Is what we need is the uneducated because they believe in the word of God. Don't do that because some people draw that conclusion. But there is something that we have to wrestle with and we all have to wrestle with it because you are all thinking people. And we have to wrestle with the idea of what do we do with these doctrines when our minds be begin to uh, tell us differently when our, our, our experiment experience in life and the facts and the knowledge that we are beginning to gain regarding how do we know what's true and what's not true when it begins to conflict with what God has told us in Holy Scripture. We have to wrestle with these things and we have to decide what we're going to believe and on what basis we're going to believe these things. And what we uh, we learned in Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. There's a moral element to it. And what we don't want to do is fall in love with our own minds, fall in love with our own knowledge and lose our love for God and the fear of God. Because that can happen. And that does happen. God is the God of all truth. There's there's no dichotomy between wisdom and academics and truth and and faith and belief. The more we know about God, the deeper our faith can be. But when it comes to the virgin birth, Al Mohler stated in an article last year in Table Talk magazine, uh, the question was posed, can a Christian, once aware of the Bible's teaching, reject the virgin birth? And... They're not saying just people who don't really know the Bible or they're new believers. We're just he's saying people that know what the Bible teaches clearly. Can they be a Christian and reject a virgin birth? He says the answer must be no. Matthew tells us that before Mary and Joseph came together, Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Just read that. This Matthew explains fulfilled what Isaiah promised. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. We cannot claim to believe the Bible is the word of God and then turn around and cast suspicion on its teaching. 
Now, I have a theology book that I studied in Bible college by Millard Erickson. Um, and it's a systematic theology book. He says, if we do not hold to the virgin birth, despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have compromised the authority of the Bible. We talked about authority in Sunday school this morning. The authority of all authorities, the authority of Holy Scripture, we compromise that. And there is, in principle, no reason why we should hold to its other teachings. Thus, rejecting the virgin birth has implications reaching far beyond the doctrine itself. And then Moeller continues, if Jesus was not born of a virgin, who was his father? There's no answer that will leave the gospel intact. The virgin birth explains how Christ could be both God and man, how he was without sin, and that the entire work of salvation is God's gracious act. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, he had a human father. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, the Bible teaches a lie. The virgin birth does not stand alone as a biblical doctrine. It is an irreducible part of the biblical revelation about the person and work of Christ. With it, the gospel stands or falls. Uh, here's another believer like the Apostle Paul who would tell people in his day, look at the at the holes in the hands and the pierced feet and then go to the tomb and look at the empty tomb and then ask people, maybe the ladies that saw the empty tomb first and then ask the people that saw the risen Lord appear to them. There are hundreds of witnesses. Just ask them because it's it's a documented fact. This really happened. And Moeller is saying this is part of. The Christian experience, it's part of the truths that God has seen fit to reveal to us. It's his spoken word and it's an intricate network of truth. And here at New Covenant Fellowship, we build on the rock and this is the rock. This is part of the consolidated truth of rock that we stand on and build our lives upon. Yes, Jesus was a normal man. He was all of that. But how do you explain the supernatural part of his life? We if we do away with the virgin birth and that God is now in the flesh, we really do away with our salvation because then where are we going to get the sacrifice that's spotless and without blemish? You're not going to find it among humanity it had to be God. And how else can death be conquered and Satan be conquered and sin be conquered and hell be conquered if Jesus was not deity, if he was not God? That's why Moeller says, yeah, it's just one of the many doctrines, but they're all they're inextricable. And they make up the person and the work of Christ, which is how we are saved based on the work and the person of Christ. Whose son is he? Whose son is he? We all have to answer that same question that shut the mouths of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Whose son is Jesus Christ? I love the Apostles' Creed. Apostles' Creed, it's a, uh, it's a collection of doctrines as the Apostles gave their teaching of Scripture. People listened and they began to gather and compile these Important doctrines that were repeat, were repeated about Scripture, and, and they surfaced at about 150 A.D. They were existent before that, but copies began to be spread around, and it became the Apostles' Creed. 
I believe in God, the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It's a teaching of the church. It's a teaching of the body of Christ because it is Christ. The story of Christ. It's a cardinal fact of Christianity. So how did this mysterious thing of the virgin birth take place? It's crazy to think about the concept of a virgin birth. So how did it happen? Well, we've got to go to the more popular Christmas story to read about that. And that, of course, is in the Gospel of, you read it every Christmas, Luke. Let's look at verse 26. Um, talk when the angel visits, I believe it's in chapter 1. Is it 2? 2.26. I just, uh, I forgot to put the chapter. In the sixth month of the angel Gabriel, that's chapter 2. Okay, chapter 2. Well, in my Bible, it's chapter 1. Now, I'm totally teasing. So, in verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, Mary's just a young lady, young teenager. She's just been visited by an, an angel and told some very interesting information. And if you're about that age, under those circumstances, you're going to have a question that's going to formulate and come to the surface of your mind when you've just been told you're going to have a child. And so she says, um, how's this going to happen? Because I'm a virgin and I don't do those things and I don't go there. And I'm kind of curious about this. So the angel answered, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And it talks about Elizabeth in her old age will also conceive a relative. And then Mary consents, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So if you want to know, well, how did the mystery of the virgin birth take place? That's it. That's all we get. Those are the details. Uh, the, the angel says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He will overshadow you. And at some point in history, Mary was come upon or overshadowed. And she was found with child. There's a baby bump. Somehow she knows that she is pregnant. Uh, and we don't know any more than that. Was it, was it dramatic? Was it dynamic? Was it just a faint tingling sensation? Did she even know at all? 
Or did she just start to show signs of being pregnant? We just don't really know all of these um, details. And Scripture doesn't tell us all the things that we'd like to know in Scripture. Sometimes it tells us things we don't want to know. <clears throat> so a lot of people ask, well, how did the virgin mean? But I mean, how, what, what happened? That's all we get. A lot of times people want to ask. They're more interested in knowing what we don't know than what Scripture does tell us. I'll give you an example. If we ever study the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse says, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. If I ever preach on that verse, do not ask me what that name is. I don't know. Nobody knows. Inevitably, we will want to know. But Mary knows. I mean, maybe she shared what happened. But Mary knows. She, she knows how it all went down. God chose her to know, chose her to birth his son. And that's just the beginning of the drama. The first angel visit. You know, when God shows up in your life, things get adventurous. Uh, things change. God often brings change. And this is just the beginning. It's the beginning because in the midst of this mysterious virgin birth and visit from the angel, she's engaged or betrothed. I shouldn't use the word engaged. She's betrothed to be married. That's a big thing in that uh, culture. So, whose son is he? Very important question that we have to answer. And then we move on to the near mess, miss, not mess. It is a mess, but it's a near miss because it's quite a drama here that takes place. She's betrothed to Joseph. So she's, she's pregnant and people begin to, to find out. You, you can't hide these things but so long. And people began to find out. And so in that culture, there's just this cloud of shame, a cloud of scorn. She's pregnant. She's not even married yet. We learned a little bit about a shame and honor culture um, from Jeff and Cookie in their seminar at church. And it's a, it's a powerful thing, a shame and honor culture. And there's a little bit about that, a little of this going on right here. The virgin birth or her pregnancy becomes a scandal. And uh, Joseph eventually hears about it. I would wonder, kind of curious, how Joseph found out. Who told him? Guess what? You know, Mary... Your beloved Mary, whom you are betrothed, she is pregnant. <gasps> How could this be? I mean, it threw him into a tailspin, rocked his world. That is not Mary. She's not characterized by this. How could this happen? Drama, drama begins. We don't know much about Mary. We know even less about Joseph, but we don't know much about Mary. Uh, probably very young, average age from marriage in that culture at that time, 12, 13, 14. She was probably poor. Uh, the little bit we do know, it sounds like she came from a pretty strong family of faith because her relative, Elizabeth, was also considered a very righteous person. Mary is a very righteous believer. She lives it. She loves God and she, she lives it. And that's why you get this response. You know, be, be unto me as you have spoken. Man, it's just so powerful. So that's about all we know 
about her. Uh, Joseph was also a righteous man. He, we, we know at least that little bit about him. So what about this near miss? What are you talking about in this drama that we're reading about? Well, talking about Joseph. You look at it from his perspective now. <clears throat> Here's how it all worked. Basically, marriage was kind of a two-part thing. In our culture, it's really kind of a three-part process. First, you start to like somebody. This thing ain't working at all. At all. First, you start to like somebody, and then if it gets serious, uh, your, your, your girlfriends are asking you, do you have a ring yet? Do they give you the ring yet? And that goes into the second phase of engagement. And then if that works out, you get married. In their culture, it was more of a two-part process. You got betrothed first. I don't think they had all the dating stuff going on. <clears throat> but you got betrothed. And a betrothal... Was like a, it was it was a contract. It was a marriage contract, and you're in it. It's a legal thing, in the eyes of the community and and the law of scripture. You're legally obligated in this relationship, and usually the parents negotiated it. The parents worked it out, who's going to marry who, and uh, many times the um, the husband would bring to the table some kind of dowry. Dowry was a big part of it, um, and the dowry played a variety of purposes in it. Um, for one thing, it, it, often you're, as the husband, the one who wants to take this woman as your wife, you're giving a lot of your possessions or something. It's a, it's a great wealth, depending on how wealthy you are. It's a, it's a huge investment, and part of that is so that people don't take it lightly because you don't get it back. It's like it just keeps people from changing their minds a lot. That's a practical purpose for it. But also it served as part of a loss that the father will suffer because his daughter leaves the house. And also I'm told that it serves as somewhat of an insurance policy. If something were ever to happen to the woman, that I think the father saves it so that she could have something to live on because she wouldn't have her man around to take care of her. Maybe if he. If he tried to pull out of the relationship, there's a very part of big part of the process there. And so they were betrothed. What does it mean to be betrothed in that day and time? Does that mean they started dating? Uh, Does that mean that um, she was wearing his varsity jacket around or that she had a tattoo, Joseph on shoulder back here. What does it mean? How legal or binding was it? Well, betrothal is a legal document, but it wasn't a dating process. As a matter of fact, they pretty much lived their separate lives during the betrothal to prepare for the wedding. The celebration would come later. So they didn't necessarily see each other anymore or any less during this Period, But it was a contract, and that's why uh, the angel will talk to Joseph and, and say, don't divorce her. Well, they're not even married. Why does he have to divorce her? Because it was looked at as a legal thing in that day and age. So Joseph has to decide, what is, what is he going to do with this news? What's he going to do with this knowledge that has been brought to him? The woman that you are betrothed to marry is, has a child, and he knows it's not his. So he's in a hard position. 
Well, Joseph's a righteous guy. He's a loving guy. He's a caring guy. He wants to honor God and he wants to honor mankind. And he has sure he still has feelings for Mary. So he decides in his heart as he wrestles. And, you know, if something like this happens, you can't just turn your mind off. It's just a part of your life now. And all you can do is thinking about it. Think about it. He wrestles with it. And he decides that the honorable thing for me to do is to try to divorce her as quietly as possible. What are your options? Well, according to the law in Deuteronomy, if a person is caught uh, pregnant outside of wedlock in this situation, properly you're supposed to take them out and stone them to death. Uh, If a person... God takes purity and virginity very serious. If a person... uh, If if the husband or the husband and wife-to-be during the betrothal process, you know, get a little too chummy and touchy... And say, well, it's probably okay because we're under contract to get married anyway. So, and then she gets pregnant. They're both supposed to be taken out and put to death. Uh, On either angle or somebody else gets involved in it, not the husband, then it's adultery and they're supposed to be put to death. But Israel didn't always... Adhere to these very strict laws that God put into place in Deuteronomy. Why did God put these kind of things into place? If you think about the Ten Commandments and these strict laws, these are the sins um, that are really, really destructive to individuals and societies. These are the kind of sins that you don't want to let loose and be rampant in your society because it just destroys everything. So thou shall not kill. Yeah, it's not a good idea. We're experiencing some of that right now in our society, the chaos. Right. And it's scary. You got terrorism. You don't ever know when it's coming. And then now you have uh, the shootings of police officers. I mean, when's it going to stop? And now there are all these viral videos of people getting shot. And it's just becoming a a part of our culture. And, And when there's soft laws against it, it just gets more rampant. So God just tries to nip it at the bud, so to speak, understanding human nature. You shall not do this. We don't want any sign of it. We can't visit us like the leaven in the bread or it's going to destroy lives and societies. And this is one of those things. Purity is 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 important in God's view, not just for its own sake. Of course, God is holy and pure, but it blesses or the lack thereof curses humanity. And it's dishonoring to God. Our view of purity today and our soft little rules and personal consciences about it is nothing like what we find in the Bible. It's important to God. That's why it seems so harsh. Well, even Israel didn't obey it that harshly. They had their own way of softening the rules. One of those ways was, well, you um, if you don't want to stone the person... You you publicly shame them. You bring them before the community. You let everybody know this woman has played the harlot. What happens? They live miserably the rest of their lives. Nobody wants anything to do with them. They're they're unrighteous. They're unclean. No man will ever want to marry them. Uh, Society will shame them. They won't have help. There won't be a lot of grace and understanding in their lives. And basically they live a living hell. And so that's a little softer than being stoned to death. And Joseph says, I don't even want to do that. I don't even want to do that to her. I just I want to, I just want it to go away as quietly as possible. I don't want her to live in that shame. So he decides in his heart that that's what he's going to do. 
But then God shows up again. And it gets a little different. The angel comes to him. Somewhere. As he's torn up about this. Verse 20 in our text in Matthew. He's considering all these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You know, Joseph, if if it's true that Mary has committed adultery, your decision to put her away quietly is, is good and right and honorable. It's not true. She hasn't committed adultery. She is a pure woman. She's not unclean. What has happened is from God. It's the plan of God and it's the Holy Spirit has brought this and has done this. Interesting thing about these words from the angel is that it says Joseph was afraid. What's he afraid of? A lot of times angels show up and it says and they were afraid. And it would probably be a pretty scary experience if an angel just popped up. Even scarier what they're going to say to you, I guess. But what's he afraid of? He's not afraid of the fact that he's having this vivid dream and this angel. Look what the angel says. Do not fear what? Not me. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That's his fear. I can't can't be a part of her anymore. Now, think about Joseph's mind and Joseph's world. He's a righteous man. He loves God. I mean, he wants to do right by everybody and everything. But he just can't take her in if she's an adulterer. Even by law, you're not supposed to have anything to do with him. So how can he maintain his righteousness before God? But also he has his reputation at stake. Because to bring in a person of shame is to become a part of that shame. And to to remain honorable and reputable, he cannot be a part of this sin. So he's he's scared. He's, He's thinking about the implications of what it would mean... If I even entertain the idea of going ahead with this and it just can't be because it ruins life, it ruins righteousness, it ruins my relationship with God. He'll frown on it and then my community will no longer see me as a righteous man. I can't live under that kind of shame and walk that path. That's what he's scared of. And yet the angel says, don't be afraid of that because it's from God. Now, that doesn't mean that the world won't shame him. So what I'm getting at is, in a sense, it's a near miss. Joseph almost got out of or backed out of surrogate fathering the Son of God. He he almost missed out on that experience that nobody else in the history of mankind had or will ever have. Is a near miss. But fortunately, the opposite of do not be afraid is what? Take courage. Take courage. Because it's going to take courage 
for you to take her as your wife because, yeah, the shame and the scandal and the cloud, it's all part of the package. But it's of God. But it's going to be different and it's going to hurt. But it's also, it's that mixture. You know, to take courage, think about when God comes into your life. It's a new adventure. I don't know about you, but for me, when God came into my life, it's a new adventure. Things are different now. And it's not always good. And with it comes shame and scorn and sneers. You're doing what? When I decided to move here to be discipled by Kurt, my former employer was like, you're doing, and my, my workers, you're doing what? You're quitting your job to go study the Bible? Huh? Doesn't make sense. It wasn't fun. Try to talk me out of it. Too. it just, when God comes in, it's different, but take courage. Take courage. It's, it's going to be that bittersweet. You're, you're going to experience joys that you've never known were even possible. But you're going to experience lows probably that you never knew were possible either. And that's the story of the Holy Family that we can't get into. <clears throat> what does God want to entrust us with? That maybe we need to take courage. What responsibility, what role does he want us to play in his kingdom? That we need to take courage. Well, in verse 22, when he awoke from this, he took his wife. He took courage. That's the kind of nap we all need, isn't it? We need that kind of nap where we get that visitation and everything that was just made us so twisted up and knotted up just becomes clear. It's not easy, but at least it's clear. At least we know what God wants. Verse 25, he knew her not. Until she had given birth to a son. You know what that means, right? He knew or not. I used to read that and I think, man, Joseph, how could you know her not? You're married to her. I mean, isn't that one of the things you look forward to about marriage? He was, in other words, he was self-controlled. And he did not physically enjoy her until uh, Jesus was born. What happened after that? He knew her. John MacArthur says the little Greek is, and he was not in the habit of knowing her until she had brought forth her first son. Uh, The implication is after the first son, he was in the habit of knowing her. Of course, we know that because Jesus had brothers and there was a family and they had this regular relationship. But I want to close with one more thought here very quickly. That I call the connection. It's just kind of short and sweet, but it's very important because you're going to learn as we study Matthew. He often um, offers commentaries into the story of Christ and what's happening. He'll kind of give his two cents or he'll make connections. And that's what he does here by quoting. um, Well, in verse 22, he interjects this. All this took place, all this drama to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Of course, he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah. Isaiah spoke this about 700 years ago. The context was to King Ahaz. He was worried that the southern kingdom was divided kingdom. The northern kingdom and Syria were going to gang up on him and, and obliterate his throne and his reign. That God had promised. And so Isaiah basically says, relax. 
God made a promise. You're in the line of David. He made a promise that the, the, the line will be there forever. So just relax. And here's a sign. And Matthew's making this connection. And he's showing people that know their Bibles. Remember when Isaiah said this to King Ahaz? Look for this sign. This is it. This is the sign. There's the, there's the virgin mother. Jesus is the baby. His father is God. He's whose son is he? He's the son of God. So we want to answer that question. We want to ask ourselves if we've answered that question, the son of God, and we put our faith in Christ for our salvation and the work of Christ. What does he want to entrust to us? Where in our hearts do we need to take courage? Because that's Joseph and Mary's story. And when God comes into our lives, we have our own story as well. Just for silliness sake, I'm reminded of the quote, one of my favorite books and movies. It's a dangerous business. Frodo. Going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Adventure. God brings adventure into our hearts. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. May we live in the pleasures of Almighty God. May God bless the preaching of His Word.